Thank you so much. I think I'm going to bring this stool up here. You know, Rocky, uh, Rocky's right about that warning track power. He just didn't tell you I helped a lot of pitchers get to the big leagues. That was one of my claims to fame. But guys, the exercise room, the room where God teaches us how to go further and deeper and higher, and the room, too, where we get tested, because there's a lot of things to cover in regard to what God does with suffering. And I think we have a very poor theology of suffering in America and the world, probably, but certainly here in America, in the church in America. I think we have more of a cultural view of suffering than we do a biblical or spiritual view of suffering. And I want to talk to you about that some tonight. Um, you know, the, one of the scriptures that the Lord, and he's given me so many over the last six months, eight months. But one is the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Well, it's easy to amen that, but when the Lord takes away something that's precious and special and a treasure and your lifelong life partner that you've had a love affair with for 55 years. Uh, I've not had a test like that. Back in 39 years ago, we lost a son at birth, and God began to teach me about suffering and his part in suffering. Um, he began to teach me when I first came to know Jesus, and I was in a little widow's room reading a book about Bobby Richardson, the New York Yankees second baseman, and I knew he was a Christian, and I couldn't figure out how to be a Christian. I'd grown up in church. I'd been baptized when I was eight. I thought I was a Christian, but I knew I had no power to live the Christian life, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so by reading the Bobby Richardson story, Bobby had met a guy in his uh, second year in the minors with the Yankees who he called a real unashamed Christian. And he said, for the first time in my life, I began to realize that I could be an uh, uncompromising Christian and a baseball player at the same time. And that just put a knife in my heart. And I just said, how do you do that? And so I ended up praying a sinner's prayer that night. And I, my prayer was... Um, Lord, I cannot be a Christian. I've tried this Christian stuff. I've tried to live for you. I've tried to do what's right, and I can't do it. I tried to stop doing what's wrong. I, I was in Romans 7. never heard of Romans 7 at that point. But I was just in Romans 7, and I was just confessing to the Lord, I'm totally helpless in trying to live this Christian life. Now, I didn't realize that weakness was a great strength. My mission of my weakness was a great strength. And... Um, and so I said, and I know I'm not the man you created me to be, and this is the miracle of it all as I look back over the years, but I want to be. I don't know who I wanted to be. I bet you some of you guys, if not all of us, who really truly know Jesus and are walking with him and abiding with him, you might can relate to that, that he's messing with you a long time before you really could say that you really gave your heart to him. And, um, and I, it takes a miserable guy to pray those kind of prayers. And I was pretty miserable. I was sick and tired. And I know a lot of people walk away, but God didn't let me walk away that night. I said, you know, God, I want to be that man. Would you make me that man? And God has, for the last 55 years, has been making me that man. And he's still in the process of making me that man. He'll never stop making me that man. 
the man he created me to be, the man of God that represents him well, the man of God that gives him heaven, the man of God that stands in the face of danger and sacrifices for the good of others and bears up under suffering. And that's what Jesus did, and he's called men to do the same thing. But we've been emasculated in our culture today, and we're way behind the power curve. We come out of the womb sinners, so we start out behind the power curve. That We have a sin nature, and then we start trying to figure out what a man is in our culture. And manhood in our culture is not well-defined, and the definition doesn't serve us well because it tells us that we got to man up. You don't need any other guys in your life. you got to stand on your own two feet and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And you can't say you're hurting. You can't say I have a need. You can't say I don't know. You can't say I love you. And that puts a guy isolated and alone. And all the devil ever wants to do is isolate one of the sheep. And then he has him for lunch. Because we don't like to think about it. And it's not really a man's turn. But we're sheep. Now, sheep don't have claws, and they don't really run. They waddle. They don't run. They don't have any way to defend themselves against predators, so they have to stick close to the shepherd, and they're kind of stupid. Maybe not kind of. They're stupid. <laughs> and they'll just follow another lead sheep right off a cliff if, some, if the shepherd doesn't you know, control that situation. Well, anyway, 39 years ago, I find myself in a father's waiting room. My wife has had one child. We was, Chris was five years old. She was pregnant with our second child. We, knew, we didn't know if it was a boy or girl in those days. But uh, in the labor room, she developed some problems, and um, she um, nurse would come in and look at the monitors, can leave and come in and look at the monitors. Finally, the doctor came in and he looked at the monitors and said, Mr. McKenzie, you got to get out of here. We're losing this baby's heartbeat. we got to prepare Susan for emergency C-section. And um, so I did. I went out in the father's waiting room. I don't remember the time of day it was, but nobody else was in there. It must have been at night. And I got in the closet. I got out on my knees. Now, this is foxhole praying, guys, right? This is crisis. And so I was in a crisis. My wife's and my baby's lives were hanging in the balance. And so I went in there and I got on my knees and I said, God, I just pray Susan will be okay and I pray the baby will be okay. Pray Susan will be okay and I pray the baby will be okay. And I prayed like that probably, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And I got up and I started pacing back and forth in the waiting room. And I was still praying the same thing. And finally I just said, God, I'm sorry. I don't know what else to pray. Um, it's all that's coming out. And God says, well, let me ask you a question. How much control do you have over what's going on in there? I said, I have no control. That's the reason I'm praying my heart out. You're, you're almighty God. You have all control. And he says, okay, if I have all control, then let me ask you another question. Would you purpose to, to uh, decide in your heart, to purpose in your heart, to praise me no matter what happens to Susan and the baby? And um, I had to take a couple of steps back. That was my first moonwalk. <laughs> and last. And I had to start thinking. I said, well, you mean if they die? And he didn't answer that question. It was a rhetorical question. I knew the answer to the question. If they died, would you praise me? And so I had to think through, now, would I praise him? Can I trust him with my wife? Can I trust him with my unborn child? The most precious things on the planet. And do I have a God I can trust with that? 
is God really good? Is he good all the time? Does God have a plan? And back in Rocky Mount, when I came to know Jesus and that night, and I said, God, make me that man. I had to come to Jesus. It was a 180-degree turn. I mean, I was going this way, and repentance means you're going this way, and you turn around, and you're going the other direction, and I was going the other direction with speed. I changed My life changed so quick, I didn't even know what was going on. I really didn't. God put a book in my hand by Billy Graham called Peace with God. I found it on a magazine book rack in a drugstore next to the laundromat where I was watching my clothes probably a few days after that night. And he, God just grounded me in what was going on with me. He just, just started discipling me through that book because it's basic discipleship after you come to know Jesus Christ. And so... I knew that my life was under new management. I knew that I was playing baseball for a whole different reason. Baseball wasn't a game that I was hoping to become famous and make a lot of money anymore. Baseball became a platform to be a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I knew that God had planned, and planned all that. I was surprised when I got drafted. I'm, I was more surprised when I played five years in the minors. But God was just given a platform. Les knows all about that. Les asked me to come up when he was with the, um, what team was that? The Twins in the California League. Visaya. Yeah, he was, and he went to his manager and he says, can we have a chapel? And at the time, I was doing chapel for the Dodgers and the Angels. And um, so he asked me if I'd come up and do a chapel. I'd never had a chapel before. And um, so they said, they told Les, yeah. And so I went up and took a buddy of mine, a buddy of ours with me, and so uh, they were going to have the chapel before the game, and normally during the visitors' batting practice, we'd have a home team chapel, but they invited the other team, Fresno, I think, was in town. They invited the other team, the umpires, the popcorn and Coke sellers. They invited everybody to come to the chapel service, and they all came. Umpires came. Both teams came. They had locker rooms where there was a locker room here and a wall and a locker room here, and they had a door right here. There were so many people there, I had to stand in the door so I could talk to both groups. And afterwards, I told Les, I'm going to give an altar call, and I want you to hand out these. And we brought some little handouts, some tracts, and Bibles or something. I can't remember what it was. And so anyway, afterwards, I had an altar call and asked guys, and they were right exactly where I was when I came to Christ, A-ball. And I tell you, A-ball guys, they pay attention. They, they got a long way to go, and they need a lot of help. It's different in the big leagues. When you go into a big league locker room, it, the fewest we ever had was five guys. I won't tell you the team. I won't denigrate them. But, well, I can. That was 40 years ago. <laughs> it, was a, it was a Red Sox. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we've got any Red Sox. I'm sure more are coming these days. Um, but, um, and then at the altar call anyway, there were so many people that raised their hand that it, we didn't know who did and who didn't afterwards. And that just shows you where guys in A-ball are. Well, I was in A-ball in the father's waiting room in there because I needed help and there wasn't any way for me to get to the big leagues without it. There wasn't any way to make it through this thing. So I came to the conclusion that God is everything he said he was. And if he's not, I need to find the God who is because that's my God. My God is a God of compassion and mercy. When David committed murder and adultery and he had 
killed Uriah and, and um, committed adultery with his wife, and he ran from God for a year, and finally prophet stuck his finger right in his chest and said, Thou art the man. And he broke. And when he broke, he eventually wrote Psalm 51. In the first verse in Psalm 51, Be merciful to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Well, gosh, you find out so much about God in that one verse. God, be gracious. God is a God of grace. God is a God who substituted his own son for me on a cross. And that's grace. I didn't deserve that. I deserve not. You know, over in Romans 5, Paul talks about, you know, you might see a guy die for a good man, maybe, if he's good and righteous. But who's going to die for the unrighteous? Who's going to die for the guy that doesn't deserve it? Who's going to die for the drug addict and the drug dealer and the prostitute and the liar and the deceiver, and the cheat, and the betrayer, and the adulterer. Who's going to die for them? Who would ever do that and give their only son to sacrifice for him? My God is who does that. My God's a God of grace. According to your loving kindness, my God is a God of love, and it's agape love. It's unconditional love. He doesn't love me because he has to or because I'm lovable. He loves me because he's lovable. And so when you come to those... situations and you're thinking, can I surrender? Can I give up? Can I let God have this? Can I trust him with the most precious things in my life? I came to the conclusion that I could and that I was going to. And so I told God that night, I said, God, I'm a purpose in my heart that no matter what happens in there with Susan or the baby, I'm going to praise your name. 30 minutes later, the doctor came out and he said, well, Mr. McKenzie, I'm sorry, but we lost the baby. He died somewhere between the labor room, the delivery room. He said, I've seen tougher situations than this, and the babies lived. He said, I think it was a fluke. Now, he'd never say that these days. But in those days, I guess they didn't didn't have all the lawsuits we got these days. But I knew it wasn't a fluke. My God doesn't do flukes. Susan was not a fluke. Cancer took her life, but it couldn't take her soul. It couldn't take her happiness. It couldn't take her courage. It couldn't take her faith. And my God was there all along. We knew from the get-go that from the minute that we heard she, well, we, she started having in this past December, she started having symptoms of dementia. And um, then she, uh, processing, thinking and processing problems. She takes a yearly trip over to Scotland to see our kids over there. We have a son and, and his wife and three kids she goes over there every year, and she called me from there on this particular trip. She was weeping, and she says, I go into their kitchen, and I don't know where stuff is anymore. And so she came home, and that went on for another week or two, and went to the, about the middle of February. We went to see a doctor, and he sent us to get an MRI, called us to come in the next day. And um, we're sitting there in his office, and he comes walking in, and he sits down, and he didn't beat around the bush. He says, Susan, you have a brain tumor. Now, I got to tell you, we were not prepared for that. We were prepared for you have the early stages of Alzheimer's or whatever that might have been. We were not prepared to hear she had a brain tumor. It turns out that three years before that, she had had breast cancer. It was a very aggressive, actually triple negative, incurable cancer. Now, somehow that didn't all register with me because it was early stages, first stage, 
They got, uh, the surgeon said, couldn't have gone better. We got it all. It's not in the lymph nodes. I don't even think you're going to need chemo. You could get radiation if you want. And so she did. It took two and a half years later for that almost golf ball size tumor to end up in the middle of her brain. And um, so we went to MD Anderson in Houston. We thought we'd be there about um, 10 days, maybe a week to 10 days. She had surgery on a Wednesday, the 8th of March. And, um, and then she was, they were going to let her out of the hospital and she'd be a day or two in the hotel room, make sure everything's okay and then go home. We were there seven weeks. And we were there seven weeks because things started kept popping up and happening. Um, she developed blood clot in her lungs. She developed lesions, these very small lesions in her lungs that were cancer. We didn't know if they're cancerous or not. They, she had to have a biopsy on that. Had to start giving her two shots a day in her tummy for the blood thinner, for the blood clots. And then she had, in early April, she had a gamma knife radiation treatment. They put this contraption on her head and... And um, and she's smiling the whole time. I got a picture of her with this contraption, just big smile on her face. Even let me back up and say the night before the surgery, some friends in um, Irvine wanted to get together and pray for her. And so they got the word out and they um, uh, reserved the chapel at Mariner's Church. And uh, it was a 300-person chapel. 200 people showed up to pray for her the night before. And others were praying all around the country and people who couldn't make it to the prayer time. Susan never, I never saw Susan. You know, life is for us, it's faith or fear. We're going to be men of faith or we're going to be men of fear. And we all know about fear, right? It stinks, you know, to live in fear. And God never honors fear. He always honors faith. And so she was just a woman of faith, and she had spent so much time in God's presence. And every morning she's up. She, I hadn't even started reading her journals yet um, and checking out on what she was saying about me. <laughs> but uh, this, I got a fly that's enamored with me. Um, and so I never saw her complain. I never saw her even fearful. The morning of her surgery, um, we woke up and she's getting ready and she was just primping and doing all the stuff she always does. And she, you know, was just almost joyful. And I said, way to go, honey. I'm proud of you. Gosh, you know, David ran to the battle line when he was facing Goliath and you're running to the battle line. And she says, I'm not running. I'm being carried. And she was. She was carried for the next number of months. She was carried until the Lord sent his angels and carried her to heaven. But, um, and so, you know, what we're, what we're learning through all of this and what we've learned is that suffering is inevitable. Jesus said that, didn't he? He says, you know, in this world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And... This is a dangerous world that we live in. It's a fallen world. It's a cruel world. It's an unforgiving world. It's a graceless world. It's a merciless world. It's dangerous to be in this world. It's dangerous to live in this world. It's dangerous to develop close, intimate relationships. I don't know how many times in a marriage builder class I've shared with 
the couples in the class. Every loving relationship will end in pain except one. So either, and I used to say Susan and I, and I didn't know how that was going to work until I experienced it, but Susan and I have a love love affair. I mean, we were blessed with a great marriage. And I don't understand it all, but we were blessed with a great marriage. I have a great wife. Some guys marry up, some guys marry way up. And I was a way up guy. And... um, so I can't, I'm, I can't brag about us having a great marriage because I had a wife who wrote things to me and I did to her back. And I want to show some pictures. Let's flash up those two pictures back there, guys. Uh, buddy, they up? Oh, has that been up there the whole time? Well, that's Susan for those of you who have not had a chance to meet her or get to know her. I tell people, if you don't love Susan, that means you never met her. And um, throw the other one up there. It's my favorite. There you go. I'm giving her a big John Wayne right there. (laughs) But I I especially like the look on her face there. She looks like she's enjoying it. (laughs) Any other look, I wouldn't be showing it to you. (laughs) But everybody knew her, knew that she she was something special. But even though she was something special, and she gave me a uh, coaster one time, it says, God loves you, but I'm his favorite. (laughs) And I wasn't arguing with that for a second. And nobody who ever met her argued with that. Um, So, if, you know, I, I look at life and I just go, okay, God wants to prepare you and me for suffering because that's what we're going to get. Either we had suffering, we got suffering, or we're going to have suffering. That's just the way it works. And I've told those couples, one day Susan will die and leave me, or I'll die and leave her and leave a broken-hearted Susan or Pete because that's just the way life is. Death is a part of it. And, you know, I learned four things that have helped me through a lot of crisis in my life. And if you got these things in the fabric of your belief system, they really help. The first thing is life is hard. Life is difficult. My dad would say, but it's more difficult if you're stupid. And, um, but life is hard. There's nothing easy about it. Because we're going to have sickness and disease and separation and broken hearts and betrayals. We're going to have things stolen. Thieves are going to break in and steal them. We're going to have things that burn down and we're going to have tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and volcanoes. and We're going to have those things. It's, it's, in, it's just the world that we live in. Are we prepared? And God wants us to be prepared. So when we say, let's get over the bridge, get your rear end over the bridge because you need to be over the bridge. You need to be all in. This is not something that you stay and suck your thumb at the shallow end of the pool. You get over that to the deep end of the pool, and in the deep end of the pool, you can't stand up. In the shallow end, you can stand on your own two feet. In the deep end of the pool, you can't. You're treading water, and only the Lord's going to keep you up there, and he can make you walk on the water if you'll put that faith in him and keep your focus on him. And I believe what Susan and I experienced, you know, and not because we're super Christians, we're not. You know, all we've tried to do is just live this life the way Jesus Christ said you ought to live your life. 
When you're slapped on one cheek, go further than that. And so we, pay, we pat people on the back who get slapped on the cheek and turn the other cheek. Well, that's just what he said to do. We're going to go further than that. We're not just going to just take a lick on the cheek. We're going to give them a, a second shot at it. Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Well, when you do that, people just go, ooh, ah. And really, it's like Jesus in Luke 17 when he, told, he said there was a, a, a guy, a master, and he had a servant who was out tending the sheep and servants tending the fields out there. And so they came in, and the master didn't say, hey, I'm going to sit you down and feed you. The master said, you go get changed and cleaned up and come and feed me. And after you've fed me, then you can eat. And the servant said, you know what? I'm an, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what my master asked me to do. Well, that's what I feel like that we've been done, that we've been doing by the grace of God and in all the strength and supernatural power that God gives. I think Susan and I were just living it out. We were just trying what God had told us all along that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to praise him in times when you, no one else would praise him. What are you doing praising him? Your child just died. I'm praising him because he's God and he knows what he's doing and he's a sovereign God and he has a good plan and even though I may not understand it, it's a good plan and I can trust him. All suffering is not about us, although it develops perseverance you know, um, over in Romans 5, he said, Paul was talking. He says, you know, we, ex we exult or glory in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. So when we go through suffering, God is trying to build into our lives to make us people of faith, men of God. He wants us to be, come down to the deep end of the pool where we glory in our weakness, because we can't keep ourselves above the water in the deep end, I'm telling you that right now, without his supernatural help. Without his grace, without his mercy, without his strength, without his wisdom, we can't do it. It doesn't work that way. We sink, just like Peter sunk. And Peter got his eyes off Jesus and he started sinking and started dog paddling toward the shallow end. And, and then he cried out for help and that's a strength, not a weakness, and God picked him up, and next thing he knew, he was in the boat, and God pulled him up. But there are times when you and I, and I know I'm talking to a room full of guys that's experienced suffering. Well, let's man up when we experience suffering. It's not that we don't grieve. I tell you, that first month after Susan died, you know, while I was caregiving to her, right up until the minute she took her last breath, and she had all her children and grandchildren, and we were all surrounding her bed. The hospice nurse says she's never seen anything like when Susan died and the crying and the weeping and the, that was going on around that bed. Because none of us could figure out how we're going to live without her. I asked her that during the last week before she died. And I was, she was sitting in her wheelchair and I just was, had my arms on the sides of the wheelchair and I was looking her right in the eye. And I said, how am I going to do this without you? And she put a little finger out and she said, you'll be fine. I'll never get that out of my mind. I'm wondering when it's going to kick in, though. <laughs> but I am fine. I'm supernaturally fine. You guys have been praying. So many people have been praying for us and praying for me. I could not be fine if I tried. 
there's something going on that I didn't decide, okay, I'm going to be better. I'm going to turn a corner. Because that first month, maybe five weeks after she died, I didn't know where to wind my watch or water the plants. And I guess I wind my watch because most of the plants have died. <laughs> I, this being domestic, I tell you, I, I'm not a very domestic guy. It takes a lot of time. And um, I used to have somebody around the house that did most of that stuff. And now um, i got to learn how to wash clothes and cook, and I'm going to take a cooking class when I get back. Don't tell anybody. Because um, I like eating. And I don't want to eat everything out of a box. But that first month, and I, even before I walked out of the room after she died, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. When, I, when we were together in, in, in Houston in the hospital, and when we came home and we were going to ophthalmologists and oncologists and every kind of ologist you can think of, we were together in that whole thing. We were praising the Lord up and down the highways when we'd go to appointments, and we would just say, it's just, when they'd say, this cancer's going to kill you, we'd just say, it's just news. Because we believe that our God, and so many people were praying for supernatural healing, and Rocky stayed with me for about five days after our memorial service, and, and we went down to the beach one day to write letters, a letter to God, and then a letter to, how many guys have done those letters? You write a letter to God, and then God writes you a letter powerful stuff and so Rocky said let's go to the beach and do that so he went that way and I went that way and we got about three hours along with the Lord and so in God's letter to me he said Susan has completed everything that I have planned for her to complete and so I'm bringing her home you'll just have to trust me I know I've rocked your world he says but you'll just have to trust me that I can bring more glory to myself and accomplish more through bringing her home than I could have by supernatural healing her and leave her there. And so that settled it for me. I said, that's okay. It's just like when we lost our baby at birth, he gave us a devotional right there in the hospital that day. And the, and the last thing says, um, be as a beacon light and his own glorious radiance will shine forth through you. And Christ himself will be revealed. Well, see, suffering is about glorifying him. The bottom line is that God would be glorified. That we would show the world what a great God we have. There's a purpose in suffering. It's not just to develop proven character or prove that you have character. But in the proving of character, people look at you and they just go, whatever you got, I need. I need that kind of peace. Where does that come from? I need that kind of patience. Where does that come from? I need that kind of joy. Where's that come from? And that's, you know, going through suffering gives us our best opportunity because there's one word that describes men who are growing in Christ. And it's called P-A-I-N. We used to, we used to have that. How many of you guys had in the locker room in high school, when the going gets tough, the tough get going? Yeah, no gain without pain. And I hated them. I hated those signs. But that's what we discover, isn't it? When we're going through suffering and we're going through pain, we discover that that's how God develops me. That's how God proves. I find out a lot about myself in the suffering and the pain that I've been through. And I've blown it before, and then I kind of respond right in another time. 
But over the years, you just learn that the whole thing is about His glory. Everything is about God's glory. We have a great God, and He will not share His glory with another. And so He's worth. And so Oswald Chambers comes along, smart aleck he is. And he says, if God has to break your heart to accomplish His purpose in the world, then thank Him for breaking your heart. Why shouldn't you suffer? If he was going to allow his own son to suffer, why shouldn't you suffer too? And when he suffered, he re, when he suffered, he reviled not. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to his dad, who judges all men righteously. There will be a righteousness in this. And even if you never understand the reason now, my God's proven character that tells me that there is a reason, there is a purpose, and he doesn't have to explain himself to me. Again, Chambers says, I require extreme service from you. Deep into the pool kinds of service. With no complaining on your part and no explanation on mine. Can you live with that? Does God have to explain himself to you? Does the clay say to the potter, why'd you do this to me? Why'd you make me like this? Have you ever come to the place in life, and again, Chambers says, real ministry is about creating an environment where the Holy Spirit is welcome to come and help himself to our lives. Have you given God permission to help himself to your life? Have you given God permission to help himself to your wife, to your children, to your grandchildren, to your business, to your home? There are people in California that they don't have a home anymore. It's burned to the ground. Now, if they have an eternal home, they're still grateful. They're still thankful. They're still praising God. Even though their material home, their earthly home is burned down, they'll find reason to be grateful. They'll find reason to still have joy. They'll have peace that surpasses all comprehension. You can't put a price tag on that, guys. And if you're diddling around and messing around, and that's one of the messages of gathering here this weekend, we got a world that's being unraveled at the very end. I mean, Brian read last night um, in 2 Timothy 3, in the last days, Timothy, there's going to be very difficult, trying, hard-to-handle times that are hard to handle and they're hard to bear because men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, proud, rude, ruthless, unloving, unforgiving, haters of those who do good. They have, they'll have a form of godliness but deny its power. Stay away from those kind of people. Well, I would say that pretty much describes... It's not that we haven't always, but we've always had hurricanes and tornadoes, but everyone we have now is a record... To her clan, a tornado. We've never seen one like it. There's never been a flood like the Houston flood. There's never been a tornado that covered the whole state of Florida and took, took it all down. There's never an earthquake like we had early in the century over in the South Pacific that measured on every seismograph on the planet. There's never been a tornado that, that hit in Alabama where they said that they, this guy was standing behind the rubble and he's this weather guy. And he says, this tornado was a mile wide and stayed on the ground for 20 minutes and there's never happened before. Well, birth pains, guys. Birth pains. And that's what we're experiencing. God wants to use the suffering in your life to glorify himself and to show the world that God, God is God and you need him. You don't even have to open your mouth. Just be patient. Just, be, just give God thanks. Give God glory. I don't mean in a showy way. I just mean in, in your heart. Be there in your heart. Come to the deep end of the pool. 
I asked a very penetrating question a few minutes ago. Have you given God the right to take your life? Have you given God the right to help himself? Creating a ministry is creating that atmosphere where the Holy Spirit is welcome to come and help himself to our lives. Are we those kind of servants? Are we the kind of servants that we have a king? We call him a king. Kings like, like their servants to be obedient. What good is a servant who has his own agenda? You tell him to go and he doesn't go. You tell him to come and he doesn't come. You tell him to do it this way, he does it his way. And he does it if it's convenient, if it's, you know, he's kind of casual about the whole thing. But I will tell you this, casual Christians will become casualties. They won't glorify Jesus Christ in the crisis. Another chamberism. When the crisis comes and courage is required, God expects his men to have such confidence in him that they'll be the safe ones, the reliable ones, the one you can depend on. They'll be the dependable ones. What does that mean? It means that they'll be safe to go to. They're the guys that have the wisdom. They're the guys that Nicodemus is of the world will sneak around at night to find, to get your counsel, to see what you think. Because they've seen in your life that you have an anchor. They've seen in your life that you're stable. They've seen in your life that you have a character that withstands a storm. They've seen the Jesus in your life that bears up under suffering and sacrifices for the good of others and does it joyfully. Guys, this is serious business. This stuff you're doing and getting in journaling and all that kind of stuff, guys really struggle with journaling. I get it. I struggled with Germany, with journaling in Germany, but journaling <laughs> for a few years. Um, but... Um, I struggle with journaling myself, but let's stay with it. Let's get after it. Don't want to not show up to the journey group because you hadn't been journaling. Just journal. Just do it. Just make it happen. Now, you're going to miss every now and then, and you'll never be a perfect journaler or anything else for that matter. But we need men that are committed to just staying with the program. We're committed to make glorifying God and, and raising up Jesus Christ because there's no name like his name under heaven and earth where men might be saved. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it safe in your hands? Is the gospel safe with you and your testimony? Are you living a life where people are going to just want to come to know Jesus, not because you had a neat event, not because you had fed them, but because they look at your life and they say, whatever you got, I need. My last year in the minor leagues, I was playing for the Oakland A's in uh, AA in my hometown in Birmingham. They didn't, I was in AAA to start the year. They sent me down. They didn't have a sh shortstop. At least I guess he wasn't any good. So they put a guy that was even worse in there, and that would be me. I played first base in high school, second base at Auburn, and then I broke into AA at third base, and I never could get back over to the other side of the infield. And I tell you, shortstops are less a shortstop, and they're, they're born. I tell you, you don't make a shortstop. He's either got it or he doesn't got it. You can make a second baseman. I played second, and I had enough skills to play that position. But when I got over at shortstop, I had a miserable year. The only pitchers that were upset with me were the guys on my team. <laughs> I wasn't hitting that well either. This is my fifth year, and I figured I wasn't sniffing anywhere near the big leagues. So I was going to retire, and it was the last game of the season. We're in Memphis. I'm at my locker. I'm putting my gear up, and this guy, this pitcher on our team, walks over to my locker, and he goes, you know what? I've been watching you all year, and whatever you got, I need. And I'm thinking, I had the worst year I've ever had in my life. 
<laughs> I wasn't worth a flip. And then I finally figured out that he watched me fail. He watched when the pitchers would blow up and chew me out in the dugout because I'd made some error that didn't get him out of the inning. And he watched when normally a guy that had just struck out with the bases loaded or whatever it is I did, he watched how I responded. People are watching us. Can God trust us with the gospel in our hands to respond in a way that would glorify Jesus Christ and make them hungry to come to know him? That's the question. It's not a question, are you going to have suffering? That's inevitable. You are going to have suffering. Life is hard. It's difficult. And you need Jesus Christ and all the power he brings, all the peace and the mercy and the loving kindness and the grace that he brings to us. You don't mess around with this quiet time and spending time in the, in the, in the scriptures. Don't, don't neglect that. Neglect other things, but don't neglect that. And I'm really proud of what I'm hearing from you guys as I hear testimonies. This one, one guy is up at 3.30, 4.30 in the morning so he can have a quiet time and journal before he leaves. Well, man, I'll tell you, that's, that's meaning business. And I've heard a number of testimonies like that out of you guys. And if we're going to win this battle in our families, if we're going to win the battle, and I know a lot of you are struggling in your marriage. And, you know, that's another place with the battleground. And we've been losing that, even in the church, even though among those who are Christian. We've been losing that battle. It's time that we start winning that battle and you quit looking at your wife as an enemy and start praying for her and praying with her and spending time in her, in her presence. No excuses. That picture you saw up there, me giving Susan a John Wayne, she acted like she didn't like it on occasion. But she loved it. And I asked God and I told God, and I've shared this with you guys before, teach me how to love her. I can't meet her needs. I can't listen to her, court her, understand her, take her seriously, and all the stuff, read her mind. I can't do all that. But if she was married to you, she'd have the best husband in the whole world. Would you just love my wife through me? Would you give me a, a real love for her? I want to love you with all my heart, and I want to love Susan with all my heart. And I did. But it ended in pain. But now the pain is being turned to joy because I see that God has a purpose in it and he's going to show it to me as we go along. I don't know what all he's doing here. I don't know what he's going to do. But I do know this, that my God is God and he's sitting on his throne and he wasn't biting his fingernails up there wondering what was going to happen to Susan. He brought her straight home and she was ready to go. And I was not ready to see her go. So I have to deal with that. And I am in this because of your prayers. So guys, I want to read this thing. Can you, can you sing us, not sing it, but can you listen to this song? It was one that I suffered through a lot growing up. At the end of church service, and they were making the big altar call, and they would sing this song. And it's called, Have, have Thou On Way, Lord. And I want you to listen to this to see if you could sing this. Could you sing it and mean it? Could you sing this if you sang it? I'm going to read it, spare you the singing part. Have, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. You're the potter and I'm the clay. Mold me and make me after your will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Hold over me absolute sway. Filled with your spirit so all can see Christ only always living in me. 
Amen? Okay, guys, thank you. Did you want to play the, the video, buddy, that we have real quick? Just, and then we'll close out. You've heard the phrase, life turns on a dime. So on the night of uh, Tuesday night on um, October 12, 2010, it was a typical night. Um, I came home from work, my son came home from school, football practice started, had, had started, he had, uh, he had come home, we had ate dinner together, talked a little bit about um, some things at school, and within a matter of minutes, my son had went upstairs and took his life. That night shook the foundation of my faith to the degree that when I buried him, I had lots of questions. About a week later, I got a call from a journey brother named Chris Hislop, who asked if I would meet with him and a good friend of his, which turned out to be Brian Craig, um, at a local restaurant. And that was the last thing I wanted to do, I'll just tell you, I was in shock still. But something compelled me to go down there and have lunch with him. And I met him down there at the restaurant and that day, I recall vividly a book that was given to me, uh, Journey to the Inner Chamber by Brian Craig, and he said, would you please read this? And if you fill up to it, would you join our group called the Journey Group? And I said, well, I'll, I'll read it. And, um, but I had no intention of getting back with him. And um, that night, I went home and I read the whole book. And. The next week, I called Brian, asked what time they met, where at, and he sent me the information, and I started my journey with that particular group. And I was still in shock, uh, but I want you to know that I was searching. Uh, I was searching, looking for answers, looking for some something. Probably like most men, we were. I was searching, though, and, and in, my, in my case, it was more of a search for um, an answer to probably avoid in my life that really I didn't know what I was missing, but I knew there was something that I was missing. At a time when I was really, I could have went either way. I could have went to God or ran from God. Um, meeting with these men uh, and going through the journey steps and going through God's word and abiding in Christ changed my life to the degree that I drew so close to God that over a nine, probably that nine month period, um, I realized I may never know the answer to the whys of what happened that night, but I do know this, that God loved me. God had a plan for my life, and he wasn't through with me yet. And that even through this tragedy, um, these men that came together in the journey group uh, kind of, if you will, locked arms with me and helped me through that, that nine-month nine period um, to the degree that I really believe without that group, I don't know that I would have made it.
How has the journey impacted my life? Well, first of all, I was searching, trying to fill my void, that vacuum that was empty, and I found out through Christ um, that, that he could fill it. And I needed some men to go along with me that could help me along that journey. And then I realized I can also reach out to other men, and that's what I do now. Um, so for the past five years, what God has done through me is to help reach other men for Christ, to lead them, to get them connected, to get them in a, in a journey group where they can learn how to abide in Christ, how to remain in Him, how to have that one-on-one -on -one relationship with God that really changes your life. It says Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And I would say through my life, um, if you would have told me my son would have taken my life, uh, taken his life on, um, on that night, it wasn't even on the radar. It was never discussed. It was never even thought of. He seemed to be happy on the outside. He was involved with so many different things. But I can tell you that God, um, God never let us down. I never blamed God. I never looked at it as God's fault, never. I just didn't know how this could happen. But through the, like you said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. There's no doubt about it. When I leave here tonight, I'm going to a group to go talk to them. And there'll be men, mostly men in that group. I don't do that because I have to, because I get paid to, because I feel obligated to. It's the religious thing to do. No, I do that because what God has done for me. Just like you said, the joy of the Lord, that's what gives me joy. That's what gives me fulfillment. It's about a relationship. It's all about a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ.